Thanks, guys. Thanks, Austin. Hello, everybody. Lovely to see you today and to be together as a, a church family. And um, it's been really cool this week just to hear a number of stories of um, just God on the move in, in different ministries. And um, I was hearing last week about um, a student coming to Nottingham who was really wanting to get baptized and uh, joined us on Vision Sunday. And hearing that baptism's uh, our first priority for the year. thought, it's my priority too. And uh, it's getting in the water in a couple of weeks' time. It's so exciting. Um, and uh, in our uh, Family Foundations uh, ministry, which uh, runs sort of Tuesday lunchtime, um, looking to kind of provide a safe space for... Um, uh, for families where we can provide uh, food parcels, baby parcels, someone to talk to uh, with kind of where things are hard and uh, signposting to other organizations, et cetera. Um, just this week, kind of hearing about some um, a family in who just so kind of overwhelmed by um, the welcome that they uh, received that um, Rachel here just got to have a wonderful uh, conversation with them about why we do this to show the love of Jesus that has uh, transformed our lives. Um, and then in our, our stay and play group, the parents and toddlers that happens um, Tuesday morning uh, just before family foundations actually uh, just this week doing a, um, a close swap together and um, uh, one parent coming in um, who was kind of, uh, in, in her own words, struggling to um, keep her kids warm in the winter and uh, just almost moved to tears by us just being able to give, uh, give her some warm clothes um, to, to get kind of her and her family through the winter. And then when she found out we're doing a toy swap in a few weeks' time, like she, she broke down and said, like, Christmas might actually be possible. And you think, wow, this is, this is the love of God in action, isn't it? Like, this is, this is why we're here. Like, we've been so changed and transformed by who Jesus is that we can't help but share it in, in all manner of kind of practical ways um, around. So we thank God for those things that he's on the move. But um, don't they just illustrate like there is tremendous power in story, isn't there? Tremendous power in, in, in telling stories together. And it's part of what we've been enjoying, actually, um, as we've begun our, our Esther series. This is um, week two. And last week, we were in the, uh, the world of um, Esther chapter one, uh, the Persian king Ahasuerus, and we struggled through the pronunciation, um, but essentially saw kind of the veneer of his kingdom, trying to kind of put out that he was something that actually deep down behind all the pomp and ceremony, um, he was not. And so he's, we saw how he's holding this, uh, this great banquet for um, all the kind of noblemen and army officials and people in the capital city together, essentially because he wants to rally support for this war that he's about to go on, uh, to go and um, uh, fight against the up-and-coming Greek empire. And we saw a number of parallels with our world that kind of puts out some sort of grand picture and a sort of, you can have some of this if you do as we say, uh, but just kind of noting um, the, the, the veneer uh, that that is, the, the lack of anything of truth and meaning uh, behind it. And we saw in, in Esther chapter one how... Um, even in that, the king then, in an attempt to impress, tries to wheel his beautiful wife out as a trophy, and she refuses to come. And then rather than the situation get managed or just accept that, um, that kind of they don't have the, the power that they were purporting to, um, actually, it, the whole episode gets broadcast over the empire, and the whole thing is, is shown. And we were noting how, as Christians, we are so grateful to have a better story, a better king in a better palace. We're invited to a better banquet, the invitation to his bride, is a better one. The commissioning to his officials, his representatives, is to tell the world of the king's humiliation, but on a cross so that we might be free, right? And so this week we're, we're into um, Esther chapters two and three. Um, so I'm going um, to jump straight in, actually. Um, so it's going to come up on the screen. We're going to read two um, and then a little bit of three later. So here's Esther chapter two. I'm reading from the ESV. 
He says, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she'd done and what had been decreed against her. Vashti's a queen. It's important to note, this is sometime after the events of chapter one. So since last week, as it were, he's had the war against Athens and he's lost. And so kind of bear that in mind as we read it. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegei, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. That's a lot of names, essentially. Just if you remember, this is the Persian Empire. The one before it that they took over was the Babylonian Empire. They took the, pe- the Babylonians took the people of God from the land of Israel off into exile. It's saying Mordecai's family was, was part, of, um, part of all that. So he got, he got, their family got taken away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. So Hadassah is um, the Hebrew name. Esther is either the Persian or the Babylonian name. There's a bit of confusion, but just shows this question that we said last week, the whole book turns on, of in Esther's heart, which kingdom is it that she's going to serve? So Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Hegei, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hegei, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. I want us this morning to look at the three characters in Esther chapters two and three. So Esther, her cousin Mordecai, and then when we read chapter three a little bit later, uh, Haman, who's the bad guy. And um, so if we start off with Esther, so as as the text says that she was an orphan Jewish girl uh, living in the Persian empire, being cared for by uh, this cousin Mordecai. The text doesn't actually say anything as to whether she should have taken uh, the opportunity that uh, the kings uh, had uh, given the Jewish people to go back to their um, homelands or not. It doesn't actually comment on whether she was right or wrong to um, not reveal Um, her Jewish identity. But what it does say in in verse 7 is that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Now, it sounds a bit strange to us, but um, in Hebrew narrative, the description that is given when a person is first introduced in a story is often key to their role in that story. And so here we see how her beauty is going to play an important part in an empire that, like we saw last week, is all about appearances. Now, what it is that actually happens to Esther and others like her is it's horrible, actually. It's, it's evil. 
um, in, in the name of King Ahasuerus' sensuality, which gets recorded in history, actually. There's a guy called Herodotus. He's um, the first ever historian, really. He's the first person in history to write about the things that he's um, seen and heard of history. And, and he records this king after he'd lost his battle that he tried to get everyone to join him in um, against Athens, basically just turning to a, a life of sensuality. And so here, the, the young female virgins of the land are, these words are horrible, gathered and taken. That's what it says in verse 8, into the harem in the king's palace. Uh, each of them will spend a night in bed with the king. One of them uh, will get chosen um, as queen off the back of that. And then the rest of them will live in the harem as the king's concubines. Um, even any children that they had with the king would not be seen as legitimate heirs um, to, um, to the throne. They're slaves, they're sex slaves at that, and they're thrown into the oppressive and objectifying rule of the king. And a similar thing would have happened to the male virgins, actually. They'd have been castrated, and uh, then they'd have performed the role of eunuch, uh, which is attending to the king and to his family, the idea being that if they'd been castrated, they weren't a threat to any of the, the female members of the family. This week, I, I read some government figures that um, put the number of victims of modern slavery in the UK at 10,000 people in our nation. 10,000 people. What's more worrying is that the estimation of the experts in this field say that it's more like 136,000 people in our nation right now in slavery. And where organizations like Stop the Traffic nationally or uh, Jericho Roads uh, here in Nottingham who uh, work with women affected by the sex industry, um, though there's more factors behind that than just slavery, they do some fantastic work in some very, very difficult contexts. What we have to hear is that slavery is still very much a modern problem. And we can hear some, some of the stories of um, hope within it. So, for instance, Grace Enterprises, a social enterprise that we run, uh, just a year ago in, employed the very first, their very first um, that person who had been a victim um, of uh, human trafficking um, it, it, into the life of one of the um, cleaning companies that they run. We can hear those hope stories, but what we have to hear alongside that is that it's things like the porn industry that society says is so acceptable Oh, it's just, you know, what a person does in their bedroom. doesn't hurt anyone. That is the biggest cause of sex slavery. We have to hear those things. Now, discussing those kind of things is, is rightly our, our, our 21st century reaction to a passage like this. But equally, we have to hear the, the point of when, when the narrative was written into a very different cultural context than ours, which is probably to say what it's trying to, trying to sort of illustrate is that these events that are happening to Esther will now define her life, that it's been stolen from her, if you like. She'll enter the harem, she'll spend 12 months in ritual preparation, and then in verse 17, which we didn't read out, she does get chosen by the king uh, to become the queen. And whereas that ends up providing a, a, an opening for redemption in the story to, date, to take place, it, it certainly doesn't solve anything. Actually, Esther is just in the same place as Queen Vashti was last week in chapter one, or as one com commentator put it, the same place as one of Henry VIII's wives. You wouldn't congratulate them on holding that position, would you? 
But in the midst of the darkness, there's a surprising element to the story because right as the author is discussing these life-defining circumstances for Esther, in verse 10, the the text, all of a sudden, it switches back to her cousin Mordecai. Why does it do that? This is heavy stuff. Why switch to Mordecai? Mordecai is the, the other Christ figure in the story, if you like. What we mean by that is that often in the Old Testament, there's people whose um, actions or activity foreshadow or parallel the work of Jesus himself and show us actually the whole story is pointing towards the one who will be our savior from, from all of the challenges um, that, that we see in this world. And so Mordecai, he, he, he is a righteous man who is vindicated in passing from death to life. That's how his story bears out. We'll see that in the coming weeks. But actually here we see his Christ-like heart. Just think of this in the midst of the darkness. In verse 11, we read it. It says, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. You can imagine his concern for her, can't you? He's pleading before God in prayer. He's, He's never forgetting her. Now, I don't know like Esther, what situations you feel define your life, your story, and the moment. What or who has been stolen from you? Places that you've ended up that you didn't want to be, didn't necessarily choose to be. The consequences on you of a godless and fallen, which really is just a nice word for evil, world. Some of them historical, some of them current, but many of them unbelievably painful. But what I do know, like Mordecai, is the concern and presence of Christ for you by the Holy Spirit. His sacrifice providing a permanent plea to the Father on your behalf, expressing his deep, deep love for you. He has never forgotten you. And wasn't there just that beautiful moment in our worship as we testified to the son of suffering who came, bled, and died, lived amongst us? I don't know about you, but just in my life, I was just like, Jesus really is with me in all the trials of life. And like here in this story, one day the salvation will be complete. One day every wrong will be made right, and everything in the dark will come to light. But in the midst of the pain now, We cling on to the fact that Jesus is for us, is with us, and will never let us go. That's a bit bit of Esther, but let's move on to talk about Mordecai and a bit of a gear shift. So he's... um, He's a Jewish man. He's a relative of King Saul, who's one of the old Israelite kings. That will become late, important later in the story. His family had been exiled from Jerusalem, the uh, people of God's homeland, if you like. And uh, in verse 19, we find him uh, sitting by the king's gate, uh, which sounds a bit weird to us, doesn't it? Just to sit by a gate. So it might be helpful to know um, that the king's gate was akin to a courthouse. And um, a person would sit there in the same way that a judge would sit in a court. So Mordecai is basically a civil servant in the court system. And that makes sense then of how he hears of a plot to kill the king in verse 22. We didn't read it out. He hears of this plot to kill the king. And he tells Esther, and the king gets saved from this plot. 
Now, it's not uncommon for there to be plots to kill monarchs or leaders throughout history, is it? I love a good Roman Netflix documentary like The Next Person, but that seems to be all they do. They're like, how can we take down this Caesar or some other empire somewhere? Like, all seems to be, how can we take down the monarch? And so, throughout history, in order to keep people motivated to tell the king, or or whatever leader it it is, usually there's a handsome reward for revealing these kind of plots. And it was the same in in the Persian Empire. And so here in in verse 23 in chapter 2, Mordecai's actions, they get chronicled in Persian history. And that, again, becomes key later. But for some reason, they don't get rewarded. And as we start to read... The ch- uh, chapter 3, which talks about the rise of a man called Haman that we'll do in a moment. And bear in mind, this is how the original readers would have heard this too. You start reading chapter 3 and you think, hang on a minute, that story's not finished. He's not been rewarded for what he's done. There would have been confusion in the original readers. Now before, in the relation to Esther, I mentioned things that had happened to us. But stories can be formed and pain can be caused also when things have not happened that should have happened, Right? Maybe you too went unrewarded for something. Maybe someone else got credit for um, your work or you feel that no one sees your hard graft in your job, in uni or college, maybe in the church, in your home. You can feel unrecognized and unappreciated. You see, Mordecai is a Christ figure His his life parallels, foreshadows all that Jesus uh, was to be, in part because Jesus faced this too. Acts chapter 10, Peter says that Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, but ultimately he wasn't recognized by the people around him, was he? And like Mordecai will be in chapter 3, he was sentenced to death. So where's hope to be found then? Well, Genesis chapter 16, Kathy referenced this in her prophetic word earlier. It tells the story of a, a woman mistreated by her mistress, whose name is Hagar. She says this, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. And if your story includes not being recognized or things not happening to you that should have done, the Lord sees He knows, and as Matthew chapter 6 tells us, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And it's talking about on into eternity. Esther, Mordecai, but um, finally Haman. And um, so here we go. He's the pantomime villain. And uh, we're going to uh, read, uh, read his account. You can boo if you like as we, uh, as we read about him. So this is chapter 3. He's going to come up on the screen. Um, uh, verse 1 to 11. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. We're not sure at what points to boo, are we? Because you're not unpack the story, but that's the fun of it. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. <laughs> Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's commands? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, 
So as they'd made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, which would, of course, include those who had gone back to their homeland. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots. It's like dice they would roll that kind of told them what to do. Before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Sounds like a lot of words to say, not very much, doesn't it? If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Boo. There we go. Haman sounds like the Hebrew for wrath, so it gives you an indication of um, where that's going. And remember that the law of first mentions, like it gives an indication to their role in the story. Well, Haman here gets described as an Agagite, and uh, Agag was a, a king of a group called the Amalekites, uh, who were a frequent enemy of Israel throughout history. Um, but in particular, at the time of King Saul, and if you remember, Mordecai was related to Saul. And um, my favorite commentator on, um, on Esther I found really helpful um, is uh, a woman called Karen Jobes. So I'm going to let her explain uh, what's going on here. So take it away, Karen. When Mordecai is introduced in chapter two, he is identified as a Benjaminite, which is a Jewish tribe. When Haman is introduced, he's identified as an Agagite. The author implies that the enmity between Jews and Agagites will be mirrored between Mordecai and Haman the readers would expect conflict and aggression. And so it goes. Mordecai won't bow down to Haman. We're not told why that is specifically. Haman gets angry and he says that he will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the king's coffers, which would have been about three quarters of the king's annual income. And remember, he's just lost a huge war. And so his resources are depleted. If that is, the king agrees to let him destroy not just Mordecai, but all of the Jews. Now, Haman here is the Satan figure in the story. And so just like the devil does in, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, he distorts the truth. And he gains an authority that he never should have had. He has the king's signet ring. And he wreaks havoc. And you get this edict issued in verse 12 on what for the Jewish people would have been the eve of the Passover festival just as they were celebrating their freedom and their deliverance from slavery, comes this edict to say that they're doomed. But fortunately, an even better redemption is to come. Because just look what's going in as, as we've gone through the stories here in, in Esther chapter 2 and 3. Esther has had her life stolen from her. Mordecai foils a plot to kill the king. Haman tries to destroy God's people. Steal, kill, destroy. Where have we heard that before? It's John chapter 10 in the New Testament, isn't it? Where Jesus says that, that the enemy, means Satan, the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And if our lives are under his influence, that's what happens. But I have come, Jesus says, 
that they might have life and life in all of its fullness. That's his promise, abundant life through knowing him. Life as it was meant to be. What's Jesus doing in that passage? He's telling a bigger story. He's locating the present struggles of the people that he's talking to within God's grand rescue plan to be the good shepherd, where in Israel's history, all they had known was inadequate ones. Jesus is showing how through his life and death and resurrection, we too can know his rescue and be brought into his great story. And that's his invitation for us today. If you don't know Jesus, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and, and follow him, orient your life around him, that is his invitation to you to come into his great story to redeem the world today. You know, Esther, Mordecai, Haman's stories, I think they're absolutely fascinating. I think they really grip us as, as we look at them. But I wondered if you've ever wondered why that is. Why are these stories, so, why, why do they do something within us? I think it's because of the power of story. This week I was at a harvest festival for my kids and uh, there was a, a vicar there who uh, did a little talk and uh, told this story that he um, said was uh, from the Old Testament. And um, I, I couldn't quite work out what, what it was, which story he was um, telling. And, but as he unpacked the plot and, and the twist and, and the meaning, uh, we were all engrossed. Kids and adults alike, which is very hard to do, right, Claudia? Yes, amen. But afterwards, we, we were talking about it. It had gripped us. It made me want to go away and look up what exactly this story was. I'm a pastor. I should know when someone says, here's a story in the Old Testament. And I still can't find it. The closest I can get is a story that one of the rabbis told. But maybe that's a separate issue. We are story people. I wonder if you recognize that. Our lives are built around stories, aren't they? There's loads of uni students around at the moment, as the guys are saying, and if that's you, welcome to Nottingham. It's great to have you here. I bet you are asked the five key student questions on a regular basis. What's your name? What uni are you at? Where's your accommodation? What course are you doing? Uh, whereabouts are you from? And, uh, or if it's in uni, some kind of alternative of those five. And I, I've just learned to roll with it, just learned to embrace it. And the reason why is because those things are trying to establish a framework so we can get into your story, so we can get to know you. I'll take another example. When, when the queen died recently, what did we do as we sort of processed that and her funeral came? In fact, what happens at any funeral? We tell the stories of her life. We tell the stories of the person's lives. Even basic conversation is swapping stories, right? Stories of humor. Stories of frustration. When our first child, Lizzie, was born, I found lots of people told me uh, stories about birth in way more detail than they would normally be comfortable talking about. <laughs> stories have power because they echo the one big rescue story into which we are brought. And even in the three stories that we've seen today, we've noted the reassurance of God in life-changing circumstances in life-defining circumstances. We've noted the reward of God in the things unseen. We've noted the redemption of God as we looked at the, the havoc that Haman's work wrecked. But they all echo the one big story of Scripture. 
And that has implications for us. It means that your story, if you know Jesus in your life, your story has power to witness to people. No one can argue with it. No one can say you didn't tell it very well. It's a demonstration of the gospel at work in your life. I was just chatting to one of our, um, one of our youth recently, a great guy, and um, he's part of a, a football academy, and um, obviously in that, there's big pressure on kind of who's going to make it on to, to the next level. And um, I just told him my story, how as a teenager, God delivered me from an obsession with football and from defining my identity according to my achievements. I wasn't in an academy, but it, 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 it sort of um, kind of struck right into the midst of his life circumstances. I was chatting with um, someone over somewhere. We were reading the Bible together, someone that um, wouldn't call himself a, a Christian. And as we, as we read the Bible and talked about Jesus and, and what it meant to kind of have faith, I, I just told him my story as we read the big story. We can practice telling our stories of how Jesus changed our life. Like, can we tell it in 90 seconds or less? We can challenge ourselves to share it or pray for opportunities that God gives us to share it with those around us. It can help witness to people, but stories can help us just in meeting people as well, can't they? They Help us in engaging and interacting with one another. We had some students around for uh, for lunch um, last Sunday and had a really great time. We were in quite different life circumstances, and so what did we do? Well, we asked questions about their story, and we shared some stories of our own. That was how we connected. Stories can help us to encourage people, can't they? I did the, the half marathon um, here recently and partway around saw someone from Grace Church who was cheering me on. It was so helpful. And afterwards, I could have just said to her, oh, thanks so much. It was really encouraging to see you. But instead, I chose to tell her a story of how last time I did it like 10, 12 years ago or something, in the very location that she was based was when I totally ran out of energy, realized I'd gone off far too quickly and was overtaken by a guy dressed as a slug. <laughs> shouting, come on, slow coach. It's just this illustration. Oh, I just got this totally wrong. And there she was. Go on, JP. She's redeeming the story. We've been talking about telling more stories in in church life recently because God is writing a story into which we are brought. That is why we are story people. We were created to enjoy him. The world turned its back on him. Now Jesus comes as our rescuer and is restoring the world. So whatever what has had a significant effect on us, like in the, the Esther's story, wherever it is that we're still waiting to be recognized, like in Mordecai's story, whatever darkness we find ourselves in, like Haman's story shows, we are most truly defined by his rescue story and called to tell it to the world. So Esther, well, she's become queen and she finds herself dwelling in the palace incarnate, if you like, in the place where ultimately she will bring salvation. Mordecai, well, he stands under a sentence of death. And Haman, he thinks he's won. What's going to happen next? Well, we're going to have to wait till next week with Tim Bunker speaking to find out. (laughs) Let's stand together. Let's get the band up.